The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Martha Bluri. She is a professor of nutrition at The Ohio State University, where her research seeks to identify specific fats that modify energy metabolism and inflammation in health and disease. In particular, her research group looks at the mechanisms of how different fatty acids change gene expression and metabolism in skeletal and heart muscles. I happened to meet her on an airplane. She was going to the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual conference in Chicago this past fall, where she spoke about these different kinds of fatty acids and to try to put some of the misconceptions, and confusion at rest. Her work has generated over 100 peer-reviewed research articles with continual funding support from a variety of respected agencies, including the NIH, USDA, NASA, the American Cancer Society, and the American Institute for Cancer Research. Thank you so much for being with me, Dr. Baluri. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Well, I'm curious to know, you know, as dietitians, and I, I don't know if I mentioned that you are also, in addition to being a researcher, a nutrition professor and researcher at The Ohio State University, but you're also a fellow dietitian. And I think it's so interesting to see how our careers move forward or progress from our education. And you have developed a strong interest and expertise in dietary fats. How did that happen? Well, I was actually studying to be a dietitian. I went to the University of Texas in Austin, and one of the professors came into one of our classes and said, there's this fellowship for undergraduate researchers. Everybody should apply, and nobody applied but me, so I got it. (laughs) And I worked with a group of professors who were working on how dietary fats affect inflammation and tumor formation. And they were doing this in mouse models for cancer to understand how dietary fat could impact basically the risk for cancer in these mouse models. That's fascinating, especially because I think if we look at some of the headlines in the media today, there are certain terms that bubble up to the top. So all kinds of fat issues, whether it's, you know, should I be consuming butter, coconut oil? What about vegetable oils, omega-3, omega-6? But also this idea that we probably should all be focusing on reducing inflammation. It would be a really good idea, in addition to reducing obesity and so on. So I think it's interesting that you looked at how fatty acids in particular influence the progression of cancer. What were your take-home messages from that research? It was really fascinating. It was a great lesson for me as first an undergraduate student and then a doctoral student, and I went to that same lab to work as a doctoral student, to learn that the pathway that we thought was so simple and that we would solve with a few mouse studies ended up being so much more complicated. So we were studying how omega-3 fatty acids could reduce inflammation to reduce the risk for tumor formation. 
And lo and behold, in the types of tumors we were studying, there was no effect at all. And, of course, as a doctoral student, the first thing I thought was, oh, my gosh, how am I ever going to publish this? But I had a great mentor who said, you know, negative data are negative data. We just get it out there, and it's not as easy to publish as positive data because you kind of have to have more proof that it really was negative and it wasn't just because you didn't set the experiment up correctly. But we published the data, and lo and behold, years later, we have learned that omega-3 fatty acids do seem to be protective against some types of cancers, may not be protective for all types of cancers, and that other types of fatty acids may also influence cancer risk. Which kinds of cancers do the omega-3 fatty acids seem to be helpful in preventing? Well, it turns out that some of the cancers most closely linked with most studies, and again, there's almost never universal findings for things, but might be colon cancer and breast cancer. Hmm. I think those are the two main ones that I can think of for omega-3s, where both mouse studies and clinical studies, and by clinical I mean epidemiological studies, especially for cancer prevention because it's hard to do a a controlled uh, trial. But so for mouse studies and epidemiological studies, omega-3s seem to continue to be mostly associated with protection against or lowering your risk of cancer. Well, that's good to know. And then there's also the whole area of research for protecting against heart disease. Mm-hmm. And we want to be able to tweak our dietary fats to prevent both heart attacks and diabetes and cancer and all of the chronic diseases that seem to plague our country. What would you tell people in terms of reducing risk for heart disease? Yeah, well, it's turns out it's actually it, the types of fats that could be protective against heart disease, and again, many, many studies show this, so that's why I would say this, but most of the evidence says that omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids are protective against heart disease. So now we broaden the, the scope a little bit, and omega-6 fatty acids are in plant oils, whereas omega-3, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids are more in fish oils. So, you you know, you can start to see that you can pull together more types of oils in your diet to help protect against heart disease, which is still the leading cause of death in in older adults. I'm so glad we're having this conversation about omega-3 and omega-6 because I myself have certainly been confused by the data. I think that if we look at how many dietitians attend these sessions on fatty acids at our professional meetings, I know that I'm not alone. And the research is continuing to add to our knowledge base. And I think that when we change our minds or change our messages, sometimes that frustrates the average consumer because it's like, well, you know, I was eating margarine, you know, years ago thinking that that was so great for me. And now I find out that those solid vegetable oils are not so good to me. So I can understand how the public is very much confused. But that's the beauty of nutrition is that we, it's a science. We build on the data that we had and we know more tomorrow than we did yesterday. So, Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so I'm glad you're here. All right, we should probably step back and let's give our audience a little bit of an understanding of these omega-3s and omega-6s. You mentioned that the omega-6 fatty acids come from plant oils. The omega-3s come from fish oils. There are also omega-3s We hear about different plant sources. So walnuts, for example, I know have been identified as a good plant source if people are on vegetarian diets. Do you want to talk a little bit about how the omega-3, omega-6 mix of fats end up in our diet and 
We've heard people say, "Well, we should eat less omega six, more omega three." Does the ratio matter? How should we be encouraging people to eat better around these two fatty acids? Yeah. Okay. Well, just let's step back just a, one more step before even talking about some of those good questions. And remember that there are two essential fatty acids in the diet. There's linoleic acid, which is an 18-carbon omega-6 fatty acid. And then there's alpha-linolenic acid, which is an 18-carbon omega-3 fatty acid. And both of those 18-carbon fatty acids we get primarily from plant oils. So plant seeds have a lot of fat, as we know, because the embryo of the the plant seed, the germ actually is... is, um, full of fat. And so those things come from plants, and both of those are essential, meaning we have to have them in our diets. We cannot make them in our bodies. We think right now, although there is not an RDA, there's not a recommendation for intakes of either of the essential fatty acids. I hope there will be one day, but there isn't yet. We have adequate intakes for both, which is basically reflecting what the population consumes that shows there's no deficiency. So is that optimal? We don't know. But at least with a certain level, it's not being associated with deficiency in different ages and, of course, both men and women. Mm -hmm. So we have now the kind of, I guess, the most simple, omega-6 and omega-3, linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid. So those are from plant seeds. Then the long-chain omega-3s that I was talking about earlier with being associated with reduced risk for some types of cancers and perhaps reduced risk for heart disease are actually not from that we can tell. And there's there's really very weak evidence for the alpha-linolenic acid being protective against heart disease. It seems to be the longer chain products of alpha-linolenic acid, which come from fish oils. We can make some of that, but we don't make it very well. Fish make it a lot better, and there's reasons they do, but it doesn't really matter. So cold-water fish have a lot of these longer-chain omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, and those are associated with reducing the risk for some of the diseases. Mm -hmm. And back to linoleic acid, that's that 18-carbon omega-6 fatty acid. That one has been for a very long time been the main unsaturated fat in the U.S. diet. It's actually the major polyunsaturated fatty acid that we consume. And it's been historically in seed oils or oils such as safflower oil, sunflower seed oil, canola has quite a bit of it, soybean oil, corn oil even is a good source. And so those oils have provided omega-6 fatty acids where we haven't really thought in the past we were deficient in linoleic acid. So again, an adequate intake is set and it seems to be that people aren't showing deficiency of that. That linoleic acid is what is associated with reduced risk of heart disease specifically. And the longer chain products of linoleic acid, it turns out, were kind of where some of these myths started that omega-6 fatty acids are all pro-inflammatory and could be harmful. Again, it turns out we don't make a lot of those long chain omega-6 products unless your body needs them. So like I was saying with the omega-3 fatty acids, we don't make a lot of those long-chain EPA, DHA, and we don't make a lot of the long-chain arachidonic acid. Again, and, Very and that interesting. was what... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now we've got the major, the essential fatty acids from different plant sources. Mm-hmm. If we have a lot more omega-6 coming in than omega-3, are we less likely 
to have the benefits of omega-3? Well, as I mentioned, alpha-linolenic acid does not seem to be associated specifically with reducing risk for cancer. So if you pit one against the other, it might not be that one is going to cancel out the other because we don't see a big benefit of alpha-linolenic acid. We don't see any harm, as far as I can really see in the literature, and perhaps we haven't tested it well enough, and that's true for a lot of nutrition where we haven't really tested alpha-linolenic acid on its own. But I want to remind you that it could actually be that both types, both the omega-6s and omega-3s, are helpful for reducing our risk for certain types of diseases. In fact, heart disease, really it seems to be both linoleic acid, the omega-6 fatty acid, and some of these longer-chain omega-3 fatty acids could be helpful for preventing heart disease risk and heart disease death. Excellent. Okay, good to know. Now, I have another question, and that has to do with some of the recent reports that have come out looking at saturated fat, and we see a big craze now for coconut oil, and we see Time Magazine last year came out with, I think it was a cover story, Butter is Back, and we even had some professors at major universities saying it's the the plant oils are better than butter, but... Butter is better than cornflakes. There was a quote in one of the popular magazines. How does the consumer make sense of all this when we've been told for so many years to avoid animal fats? Mm -hmm. Well, as dietitians, we're all pretty familiar with the cycles of what messages consumers have gotten about fat. In the 60s and 70s, it was eat more corn oil to reduce your risk of heart disease because of the effects of linoleic acid to lower cholesterol, especially LDL cholesterol and maybe even raise HDL. Then we had the low-fat diet recommendation for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And then we had the trans fat discovery that trans fats really do promote the risk of heart disease and heart disease death. It's pretty clear in the evidence in the literature. So then we had to have all the foods kind of revamped to have lower trans fats. I can understand consumers and dietitians getting tired of the messages, but in fact, we are just discovering new things. And we learned low-fat diets don't work. We now know trans fats are really kind of harmful for increasing risk. So here we are talking again about animal and plant-derived fats, And I think some of that is is kind of a rebound from the trans fat worry. So because trans fats form from vegetable oils that are hydrogenated, the byproduct is the trans double bond. And it's not an intended product. It's a byproduct that happens during the chemical processing to make an oil more solid. Mm -hmm. So people have gravitated more toward animal fats, I think in part because many, but not all, are saturated And so the saturated quality we know is important for certain food products that everybody consumes, not just baked goods, but saturated fats are important in some things like texture, mouthfeel, et cetera, for many types of foods. So I think part of the migration now toward animal fats, again, is about the trans fat kind of rebound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. 
Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and our guest today is Dr. Martha Belluri. She is a nutrition professor at The Ohio State University. Her area of expertise is dietary fats, or what we also call dietary lipids, that modify energy metabolism and inflammation in health and disease. Well, let's also talk about coconut oil because this is such a rage now. I think I've read where people are putting it under their tongues for <laughs> for amount of time. I mean, there's just all kinds of health practices being promoted around coconut oil. I find it to be very tasty sometimes. I think it can be beneficial from a, a taste and mouthfeel perspective. But I just hate to see people being misled into thinking that, oh, my gosh, we found the silver bullet of fats, and this is the one we have to be eating all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, good question. Well, most of the saturated fats in our diet are still highly associated and in some randomized control trials really even associated with increasing the bad cholesterol, increasing inflammation. And coconut oil is probably along those fats that have the types of saturated fats that do that. So again, backing up a step, the one saturated fat that does not seem to promote atherosclerotic plaque formation in animals and increase the bad LDL cholesterol and maybe promote things like fatty liver is stearic acid. That's an 18-carbon saturated fat. But the shorter ones, the 16-carbon, 14-carbon, 12, are actually the fatty acids when saturated that could be quite quite harmful. And it's not just raising the bad cholesterol, but it seems to be that those types of saturated fats can lead to fatty liver, can lead to visceral fat accumulation. So that's that adipose accumulation that we tend to see that where you gain weight around your middle. Right. And actually can lead to insulin resistance, which is probably part of that fatty liver problem. So coconut oil, I have not seen any data that support the idea that coconut oil is healthful for reducing risk of heart disease, diabetes, and or even fat gain in your abdominal region, which nobody wants. Exactly. And I think you bring up a really good point in that we've often studied people and there are different body types. Either you gain weight in the abdominal area, you're called an apple, you gain it in the hips, you're titled a pear. And it seems that people who gain fat around their middle seem to be at increased risk for a number of chronic diseases. So you mentioned that the 16-carbon, 14-carbon, 12-carbon fatty acids, when saturated, are harmful. Take me into the kitchen and tell me which specific fats that would be. Mm -hmm. Generally, and again, there is that one fatty acid, 18-carbon, that doesn't seem to be harmful. It doesn't seem to have any protective effects, but... So it might be a neutral a kind neutral. of fatty acid. Yeah. But any of your fats in your pantry that are saturated at room temperature are generally solid, and that means they're going to be not better for your heart, your diabetes, or your middle. Okay. Good to know. And if we wanted to refer consumers to a resource where they can get some of these fat topics explained in a way that we could apply them in our own kitchens. Do you have any favorite resources for that? Mm, I really don't. I myself even have to really carefully look at things that are in advertisements and in the research because even kind of research journals might not always have truly evidence-based research. They might be 
promoting a, a letter of, to the editor, which is an opinion, not not necessarily data driven. And so you have to look really carefully. I don't know of a good source that kind of declutters the all of the messages that are coming out now about fats and oils. Yeah, it's really complicated, I think, for the consumer in the marketplace. And I think that our diets have changed over the years, and you spoke about that at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting. And I think it would be interesting to take a little historical course, a little historical path through our dietary habits. So, you know, I, I think back oftentimes to my grandparents who were immigrants to this country. You know, what did they eat? And what did they eat in Europe where they came from? What were some of our ancestral diets and how have they changed? What are we eating as a nation? Well, about a third of our energy comes from dietary fats and oils. And that, we think, is okay. We're hoping people are consuming more unsaturated fat than saturated fat. And that is not necessarily happening, but we're trying to get people to consume more liquid fats and less solid fats generally. So again, that coconut oil idea just doesn't seem to fit with that recommendation. And the reasons are pretty clear. Unsaturated fats, and that means oils basically at room temperature, really seem to be protective against heart disease, diabetes, gaining weight in the middle, maybe other things that go along with those things like fatty liver and risk even for pro-inflammatory diseases, and then that extends into things like cancer and other conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, another oil that I use oftentimes in my cooking is olive oil, and that falls into the monounsaturated fat classification. What has your research found on olive oil, and I believe grapeseed oil would also have a high level of monounsaturated fatty acids, if I'm correct? Actually, so olive oil is a very good source of monounsaturated fat. It's oleic acid, and it is actually, for most people in the United States, not their primary source of oleic acid or monounsaturates. We get monounsaturates really everywhere in the food supply, and they're actually even in animal-derived foods like chicken and beef and dairy and so forth. Grapeseed oil, just to, to correct you on that, that's actually linoleic acid-rich, so it has that 18-carbon uh, omega-6 fatty acid linoleic acid is its primary fatty acid. Thank you um, for clearing that up for me. Yeah, no problem. But it, that's what I speak is oil. <laughs> so uh, that's all I know. And it um, proves that dietitians are also confused when it comes to all of these different fatty yeah, acids. Yeah, that's very true. Olive oil has so many properties that might be beyond the oleic acid content. We know that there's many polyphenols, which are those pigments in olive oil that give it the taste, the unique taste that it has, and really seem to perhaps have some very good medical properties. So olive oil is a bit beyond just the oleic acid portion. All oils, by the way, have some types of flavonoids or polyphenols things that are compounds we're just now even identifying there and then trying to identify their function in the body. Mm -hmm. But olive oil does have very nice properties for certain taste and health properties. You know, one of the things that has concerned me over the years has been the smoke point of different oils. And I know if I'm cooking and my oil starts to smoke in the pan, I will immediately dispose of it. I just am careful about that. Can we talk a little bit about smoke points and what happens when oils start smoking? Should we be leery of some of the health effects from that? Yeah, so far, what I'm seeing on smoke point, so oils that have reached a smoke point start to undergo oxidation and other products start to 
breakdown from the fatty acids and other compounds in the oils, not just the fatty acids. So there's sterols in, in oils as well. Those are cholesterol relatives and other lipid-soluble things that will start breaking down. And we know that many of these things, when we provide them in large amounts to an animal or to a test model for oxidation, promote more free radical generation. And we often think that free radical generation is associated with promoting disease risk. Again, kind of heart disease, inflammation, and perhaps other types of diseases. So you are totally right in getting rid of your oil once it reaches a smoking point. And that's hopefully what's happening in fryers, in restaurants, and in people's homes. But oils have different smoke points, not just based on the fatty acid composition, whether there's unsaturated or saturated fatty acids, but also on those things like polyphenols. And so you know olive oil has a low smoking point, meaning it doesn't take a lot of elevation and heat to reach a smoking point, and that's probably because of those polyphenols. So mm-hmm. they can be used in cooking, but I think that keeping the temperature lower and making sure you replenish, so replace actually the olive oil is important. Mm-hmm. I remember my grandmother used peanut oil a lot in her cooking. Mm-hmm. That absolutely is a very healthful oil, very unsaturated, has a lot of linoleic acid, of course, people who have peanut allergies have to avoid it, but it does have a very nice flavor for some certain things. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there are some nice oils on the market. There's pecan oil that I find to be very delicious, as well as walnut oil has a really nice mouthfeel. What do you want our listeners to take away from our conversation? I think one of the most important things that dietitians and consumers need to know is that both omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids are important for health, and they're both probably important for maintaining health. So they're both associated with reducing risk for heart disease. Omega-6 linoleic acid is almost definitively found in every study to lower your risk for type 2 diabetes. And so there's been a myth in nutrition about this ratio called the omega-6-omega-3 ratio, and it really seems to be more distorted than helpful for both dietitians and consumers. And the reason for that is we know both omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids could be helpful for health, not harmful. And so if you pit one against the other, you actually are, are not finding what the goal of the ratio, I believe, but I don't know because I, I can't find the original article, was to increase omega-3 fatty acid intake. And we do think that people in the United States need to increase their omega-3 fatty acid intake, especially the longer-chain omega-3s, which you find in in cold-water fish primarily. Mm -hmm. So I would say if there's one thing to remember, the ratio may not be the best tool. And in fact, I would say look at some other ways to have your patients and yourself choose oils. I would look definitely at liquidity or meat being liquid at room temperature as just one eyeball guide, which is one I use. Mm-hmm. So I would not be concerned about trying to lower omega-6 fatty acids. In fact, there are data to show that lower omega-6 linoleic acid promotes the risk for type 2 diabetes and heart disease. So I think clearly that's not the message we want people to take. Well, I want to thank you so much for helping to clear up a very confusing area of our diets. There's been so much misinformation that we've had to navigate. And, you know, when we go back and we see how we see some of the sugar studies and the carbohydrate studies and people are 
really confused about carbohydrates and fats, and so this kind of conversation, I think, is extremely important. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Martha Belluri, nutritionist, professor of human nutrition, and Carol S. Kennedy, professor of nutrition at The Ohio State University. Her area of research is dietary fats and how they modify energy metabolism, inflammation in health and disease. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Belluri. You've been very helpful. You're most welcome.